I'm Alistair Funge, Space Policy and Operations Engineer, and I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization, or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. Today we're meeting T.S. Kelso. He's a pretty awesome guy. He's a doctor. Uh, his PhD, mechanical engineering at Operations Research. Well, that's a good thing, Operations Research. If you don't know what that is, go Google it. It's a thing that I do a little bit of myself. Guess what? From the University of Texas at Austin. All right. Dr. Mori Baja, that's his home turf. I think that... Dr. Kelsa was there a little bit before Moriba got there. I'll have to check my dates, but it's a neat connection. When you get into the study of satellite identification, tracking, and uh, orbital prediction, you're going to run into him. Uh, he is, okay, this is a mouthful, okay, currently a senior research astrodynamicist for something called ComSpox Center for Space Standards and Innovation, and uh, works from Hawaii. So we had quite a fun time connecting uh, because of the time difference and, you know, Dr. Kelso's a busy guy and so it took us uh, many months <laughs> to, uh, to get to do this. So I really appreciate uh, TS for carving out some time and we had a lot of fun talking about this. The, the second direction uh, is TLEs and, and anytime you get, these are two line elements and this is how satellites communicate information back down from orbit to the ground stations and then uh, to be entered this data is to be collected and entered into uh, various software programs to figure out all right <laughs> who's what where why uh, and it's not so easy and we're going to talk about a lot of things to do with uh, identification and tracking and the evolution of that process in this discussion and you're going to hear how uh, you know you put 60 starlink satellites up there and, and yours is maybe mixed in there how do you know what what's what <laughs> which one's yours they all look the same they all bounce back the same kind of light they don't have transponders right we know this so we talk a lot about this um, the process of how we get involved he was the guy who uh, at, at first in the 80s asked for the data hey NASA, you know, and uh, and the tracking groups, can we have this data? And uh, and then what do you do with it? You've got to create a program to analyze this stuff. And uh, again, uh, I started off this discussion with the very innocuous question, right? And I didn't know, I don't think this was on uh, our, our uh, worksheet that we go through to figure these things out. Uh, I organized these interviews. And most of the time we cover the Q&As ahead of time, but I just had a sudden thought to ask about how do you do this? And uh, you're going to hear what we get into. It's fascinating. All the things that we're used to today, the standards and the agreements and all that, uh, it's easy to send each other PDFs or GIFs or you know other kinds of files. Back in the 80s, the early 80s, and I was there. I was a kid, but I was there participating in this to some degree. Uh, it wasn't that easy. Your computer didn't talk to that other computer over there. They were different kinds. There wasn't a standardized kind of, uh, of format to send an image or data by. 
there was a lot of communication problems. Uh, think about the effect on collaboration and all the advantages that you and I have today. So let's get into it. This is a really fun discussion. I waited a long time for it and uh, really glad we had it. Dr. Kelso, welcome. Let's talk for a minute about how you got started in this field. Uh, you, you were a young man uh, and at some point you went to NASA and you asked for the TLE information to be bailed out or something. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this, what the spark was, and, uh, and you know what made you even think about doing this in the first place? Well, this will definitely date me, but uh, kind of started in the late 70s. So uh, back then, people didn't know what a personal computer was, and I actually had a TRS-80 Model 1, and I was trying to do some things like predict the positions of the planets. Not that that hadn't been done before, but I wanted to learn how to do it and learn how to program to do it. And one night, uh, you know, we're like 70 miles from Kansas City. I've got this little dinky TV, black and white. And uh, the weather guy says, hey, uh, Skylab is getting ready to come down. But if you go out tomorrow night and look here, you can see it going across the sky. And so I called one of my friends and we went out in the backyard and sure enough, there's this dot of light just kind of going slowly across the sky. I often wonder what would have happened if it had been a cloudy day instead of a clear day. But I looked at that and that was the spark. It was, I want to know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, was a, it was some years. And of course, you know, what, uh, what your listeners probably aren't aware of because probably a lot of them weren't born then is that we didn't have the internet and we didn't have any kind of electronic communications and so you got information through magazines and so one day I get a magazine that says here's this satellite tracking software and I got a copy of it and then started trying to reverse engineer it and at, at the time this was early 80s I'm at uh, the Air Force Institute of Technology as a graduate student and our class leader had worked in Cheyenne Mountain, which is where you know, the Air Force used to do all their satellite tracking out of. And it's like, I, I can't figure this out. You know, do you have any idea what this is supposed to be? And he's like, oh, that's SGP-4. And of course, my initial reaction, just like many people that come to Celestrac was, what the heck is, is SGP-4? And he explains to me, it's a propagator and you have to use this uh, data. And I had a sample of the data and it actually came on like a one-page sheet of paper with the, what we now call a two-line element set at the top of it. And he's like, oh, you use that and you can, you can predict it. And if you go out on the Defense Technical Information Center, you can get a copy of the report that explains, you know, what's going on. And so I did that. And, you know, over the, over the process of doing that, it's like, well, I need to have data to be able to figure this out. And yeah, was, you couldn't email or go on their website because none of that existed. So it ended up, you know, you wrote them a letter and then you waited, you know, a week or two and then they'd start sending you pieces of paper uh, in, a, in an envelope by first class mail, you know, a couple of times a week. And then you'd sit down and type it up. And so that was, that was kind of how I got started. And you can imagine that that was a challenge doing it for just a handful of objects you might have wanted to watch back then. And with the thousands and thousands of objects we have today, that, that would be unmanageable. Right. 
Wow. Uh, well, I, I grew up in the 80s. I, I was born in the 70s, and uh, we had a Commodore 64 growing up, which is a little bit further along from the TRS-80, but not that far. And I remember getting Compute Magazine, and they would have uh, games yep. in there that you would have to type in in BASIC, or they had a machine language thing, and you had to have an, uh, an assembler in that, and it would check for you. Um, and you would never know, yeah, is this good enough until you typed it all in and then you did a checksum, right? <laughs> so I remember, right. I remember that. Uh, I, I grew up with that. So, and, and I'm still thinking even now, like you mentioned the TRS-80 and I thought, what? Can that, can that thing handle this sort of, like what, what complexity of equations could a TRS-80 handle? We didn't, I mean, it, it probably really didn't get to the part where I was doing that on the TRS-80. The, the real challenge up front was, you know, so I would get this stuff in the mail mm -hmm. and I would, uh, you know, I'd come home and I'd type it up and then I would go out and look to see if I could see a pass. Mm -hmm. and, at, and so after I finished at the Air Force Institute of Technology, I went uh, to the Sunnyvale Air Force Station, which is what it was called then, eventually became Onizuka uh, Air Force Station. And now I think it's closed, but uh, where we did satellite operations for the Air Force. And, um, and it was in Silicon Valley. It was when you know, a lot of the communication stuff was starting up. And we had these groups of people that were doing uh, software for what we called an electronic bulletin board. Mm -hmm. So the concept at the time, there wasn't, inter well, there was internet, but we didn't have access to it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the only way you could do it was, oh, you had a modem, yep. which, uh, you know, some of you may have heard a uh, historical beeps and chimes or whatever from what a modem sounds like. But, you know, you would hook that up to your phone and you hook the computer up and then somebody else would do that. And you do it usually at a blazingly fast speed of 300 bits per second. <laughs> So really, really, really slow communications, but we started setting these up and playing around with the software. And one day I got this idea. It's like, you know, I come home every day and I type this stuff up and I bet there's other people out there that would want to do the same thing. And so if I type it up and put it on the bulletin board, then they could just come in and get it and they wouldn't have to retype it as if there, there were actually other geeks out there that one, one wanted to do it and two could actually find your phone number to be able to call up your computer, but somehow that did manage to work. And so that, that was kind of the challenge, right? I mean, you're going through this, how do I do the connection? And so the TRS-80 ended up being more of the, how do we establish the communications mm -hmm. and eventually do things? Because even, even concepts like there wasn't such a thing as a PDF. So when you wanted to put out a, a document, how what format were you going to put it out? We didn't have GIFs, didn't have JPEGs, none of that, and and so all of that was a learning experience and trying to figure out how do I convey information to people so that they can do this. And and really the the motivation was to do all the parts of what's the software you're supposed to use and how do you get it easily. And then what's the data you're supposed to use and how do you get that easily? And then allow people to go off and you know innovate and do their own thing on top of that without having to constantly reinvent that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super exciting. And I'm glad you brought up the, the lack of GIFs and PDFs and things like that. I think people today, 
take collaboration very lightly. Like, oh, it's so right. easy now with Google Drive and sharing files. And uh, I can remember where there were there were multiple word processing programs that were fighting it out, right, for for supremacy in the marketplace. Uh, and, and you'd be like, well, word perfect. All right, now I got to turn this into something else, right? Uh, and nowadays we've got APIs and they'll talk to other apps and give access and make it all work, right? Um, it's so much easier. So you you are figuring this stuff out <laughs> at the time. Um, how often, I guess, was it, was it challenging in the sense that like, so you'd give somebody the data and they'd get the program to run it through somewhere else and then they'd go off by themselves and uh, create something else with it. Uh, was it easy or difficult when they'd come back um, from their journey sort of with something new uh, to, to disseminate that or to, to get other people to be able to use it? it? It was really a challenge. You know, when you think about, uh, you know, how do you exchange information? You know, one of the first things you need is a standard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have eventually developed things like GIFs and JPEGs, but one of the one of the kind of offshoot things that I ended up working with early in this process, and this was uh, probably like the mid '80s when when I went to the University of Texas at Austin to get my PhD, was I got involved with these guys that were doing they were pulling down satellite imagery off of the NOAA polar orbiting weather satellites, and so they needed to know how to predict where they were going to be and where to get the data and that kind of stuff. And we got in this exchange and it's like, wow, this is really cool. I want to do this. And so I got, you know, antenna and a receiver and, you know, figured out how to hook it up. And, and that in itself was a challenge, but, and you think, well, okay, we're done, but there was no real graphic standard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you had to figure out for every individual machine, there was a unique way to get the graphics to display. And then if you wanted to say, Hey, I got this really cool weather image over, Texas and send that to somebody say in New York, there wasn't any way to do it. I mean, it was on your computer and there was some custom, you know, proprietary data file that you can load into a specific type of software that only worked on your, your computer. Right. And, and so, you know, that was when that was like right before GIFs came out. Hmm. And then it's like, hey, if we can figure out how to encode it as a GIF and we can share it as if anybody had GIF viewers at the time. So yeah, it was initially, it was a very, very difficult process just to, to be able to exchange the information that you needed to do it. But we eventually got to that point and the JPEGs came out. And, and I mean, there were all sorts of things that other people for you know other purposes than doing satellite work were starting to understand like, yeah, we, we need this. We need some way to interchange images, for example. And mm -hmm. so it was, a, it was a good time. I often wonder how I had the time to do that while I was right. working on a right. PhD, but I'm lucky that I was. Wow. Well, folks, take a moment and just consider how difficult collaboration would be, how, how much slower the, the process of iteration and learning would be if we had to figure out how to communicate every time something new somebody new came along uh, you know if you get it to talk on your computer versus theirs um it, it must have been extremely challenging uh, i wasn't even doing anything like that as a kid right i was just <laughs> putting putting games into my disk drive and running them you know or typing a few things up but 
man, that's complex. Um, so you, you know, you've seen this for a long time. Um, uh, what I'd like to do, we, we, you mentioned standards, and I want to get into standards and how important they are, um, and and how this should be evolving. What's the truth about the current state of U.S. technology when it comes to satellite identification and tracking? There, let's just say there's a lot of challenges there, I and mean, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people really appreciate. You, know, you, you don't want to focus on the past and you know trying to do things the way they've always been done. But to some extent, you know, we all face issues with what I'll call legacy hardware and software. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, this this system was developed at a certain point in time. And then for whatever reason it's not updating. And one of those, one of the classic cases of that that we see in satellite tracking is what has been developed as you know, what's called the US Space Surveillance Network or SSN. So there's, there's sensors and there's computation centers. Uh, the 18th Space Control Squadron operates that you know, for the US government today. And you know, so they collect observations and they process it, but, but they're doing it based on development work that, that was primarily done in the 70s so things like SGP-4 and the format that we use for the GP data, the general perturbation data or TLEs is, you know, was developed in the seventies. Uh, they had such limited bandwidth that they were trying to cram as much information into two lines. And at the time it was actually two cards, you know, with the kinds of stuff that we put in a hopper to feed in, into the computer. And so they were trying to fit that in there and, and they, they used a two digit year. We often rue the day that somebody decided to use a two digit year because that causes all mm -hmm. sorts of problems even today. And, uh, but they considered, they actually considered a one digit year because it was such a premium on things like bandwidth. So we're, so we're still using a format that's tied to limitations of computer systems back in the 1970s. And a lot of the software that was developed back then didn't, I mean, they, one, they assumed, I'm sure, that th those systems would be updated eventually. And unfortunately, they have not. I mean, this is, you know, this is kind of a broader issue, but the US government and the Department of Defense in particular has failed on multiple occasions to try to update that. And so, you know, we were stuck with this system that was not designed to do it you know so when when you see things that might be limitations there so tracking or identification it it's not so much a failure of the people or the system it's a failure of the ability to update it because when these systems were developed nobody had a concept that we would be doing things like launching 60 to 100 satellites at a time on a booster or that we would have tens of thousands of objects that we were tracking in Earth orbit. I mean, they they just weren't projecting the environment in that way. And then, of course, the things like one of the things that I work a lot with is on the safety of flight side. And, you know, we constantly get in this issue of, well, you know, how do you predict close approaches for satellites? And and people will say, well, you know, TLEs aren't good enough for that. Well, they weren't designed to be good enough for that. It was it was never envisioned when that that was designed that you would have 
these close approaches happening thousands of times a day and you would need much more accurate data. So there, so the, you know, the first limitation we have are, are these legacy hardware and software issues. And so now we're in the mode of, well, how do you overcome some of those? And, and so some of it is, is done through standards and uh, you know, standards are important. And so, I, so one of my jobs, I have kind of a weird job description, I guess, but I work for, I'm part of uh, ComSpot. We have a center called the Center for Space Standards and Innovation. And of course, standards is an important part of what we do because if you wanna go off and innovate, you'd rather not have to reinvent the wheel every time you start to do that. So you need to know what format is the data gonna be in, what software should I use, what's the accepted version of that software, all of those kinds of things before you go off and say, okay, now I'm gonna stick my neck out and predict whether these two satellites are gonna collide or not. And so it's a, it's a non-trivial issue, but if you don't do that up front, then you're going to run into issues later on with you know what you're trying to do so so now we're in a, an environment where technology is advancing and i don't i don't know that they necessarily just discount the limitations of the system i think a lot of people assume that the u.s government with all its resources must be able to do all sorts of magical things with tracking anything in Earth orbit. And while that may be the perception, the reality is a little bit different and it's because of those legacy limitations. So when we launch, let's say, you know, one of these launches where we've had a hundred CubeSats on it, and if they're all pretty much the same size and shape and you just dump them off of a, of a rocket body in upper stage, and now the radar picks it up. Well, one, it wasn't really anticipating when it was designed to do that unless it was a missile attack. <laughs> so, so the response is gonna be a little bit different than you would for satellites. And all of those objects are gonna look exactly the same to the mm -hmm. radar. Right. I mean, so it doesn't know, it's like, well, I see one 3U CubeSat here and I see you know 50 other ones over here. I don't know which one is which and you mm -hmm. think, well, that's okay. You see them, right? But if you know, if you think about it, the challenge is we want to know where they are going to be, mm -hmm. and so you have to be able to predict them. Well, to predict them, you know, in in uh, orbital mechanics, it's reasonably straightforward. Now we have complications from atmospheric drag, but it's reasonably you know straightforward to say, oh, if I know where the object was in the past and it's acting primarily under the influence of gravity, I can predict with good confidence where it's going to be in the future. And the problem is to connect the dots, if you will, you have to know which dot goes with which object. And so when you see 50 of them and they all look the same, and now you're trying to connect the dots and they go over one sensor and you see 50 dots and they go over the next sensor, maybe you see only 48 dots because of observing geometry or whatever. And you're trying to connect all those dots to get orbits, it's, it's difficult to do. And if you don't do it right, then your prediction doesn't work and your, your correlation between new observations and, and that track, you know, start to break down and now you have to revise the track and it may involve revising, you know, some of the past associations. And so it, it's a time consuming process just to get the orbit. 
And of course, you, you know, when you have these objects that are in close proximity, trying to do the association between, well, that object, you know, is this orbit, but I don't know what that object is. Then it's like a whole other level of uh, complexity. And the, and the challenge there becomes kind of a mission assurance problem. It becomes, if, if I say a university builds, uh, you know, a CubeSat and we're gonna do some kind of research and we plan everything out, we know, you know how it's gonna be launched, when it's gonna be launched and what, what the orbit plane is and lighting and all that. And then we make the assumption that, oh, but, but by the time it comes off of that rocket body, I'm gonna know exactly where it is and which one is mine, that's not going to work. And so if you have to do something like, oh, I can't, I have to bring these systems online and do something with the solar panels before I can, you know, really get this thing working. And you assumed you were going to do that the first day and it takes two weeks to identify your satellite, your satellite could be dead. And so we're, you know, we're trying to get people to realize it's like there's limitations here. Now we, at Celestrack, one of the things we do is we work, and, and we do this on everything, right? We're really, we really, after that experience I described earlier, uh, appreciate the value of collaboration. We as a community can work together to resolve a lot of these limitations until, you know, these other systems and some of the newer commercial systems start to come online to support it. But, you know, we work with SpaceX, for example, they've launched over 1300 satellites now. And, and so you think about it, they launch them 60 at a time and we have the, the same challenge. They're all, they all look the same, the radar. SpaceX though knows which one is which because they're communicating with everyone. They're able to get GPS tracking off of it and build their own orbits. And then they can generate a prediction that says, oh, here's where my satellite's gonna be. And so we work with them to do something that we call supplemental TLEs or sub TLEs. And it's instead of it being TLEs derived from observations from the space surveillance network, it's TLEs derived from the ephemera set, you know, includes predicted maneuvers for, you know, like the upcoming days so that we don't get into that, well, which object is which, you know, how do we do all these? So, so we can cut through all of that without a single sensor, but it takes collaboration. It takes a little bit of innovation to try to, to look at the problem and, and not focus on the problem. You know, don't, don't focus on the obstacle, but focus on what are the ways to get around that obstacle so that we can do what we need to do. Okay. Well, you covered a lot in there, <laughs> no, uh, no. including there's several questions here that you answered. So uh, one of the questions I have was, what should we update first, technology or standards? And I think standards is your answer. And then the importance of collaboration with operators. If, if the operators will collaborate with you, um, then you're able to speedily get through the problem of what's what and get to the business of the, the orbital pathing and predictions. So that's really, uh, I think an important thing. And this, this is good because this is um, so far, from my perspective, been a slightly different conversation from what I might've had with Dr. Moribaja, for example, right? Uh, where, where we've covered some of uh, the similar concepts, but I think, you know, it's great because you're coming at it from a, a different angle here. Um, right. So 
other than this huge massive satellites suddenly that are getting thrown up there, uh, what, what other concerns do you have about the future? Um, and, and I guess here's a question that's popped out uh, while, you've been, while you've been explaining. Um, why has the United uh, States government, in, in your opinion, shied away from updating the technology? They haven't really shied away. They've actually had, and, and I've literally lost track of how many times they've done it, but there's been probably four major programs. I mean, multi-billion dollar okay. efforts to update, you know, the systems. And it, you know, every time it has failed, you know, I'm sure the, the reasons why they have failed is, you know, far too complex to get into, even if I did understand them. But the fact oh. is, it's not that they haven't, that they haven't tried. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. that they haven't been successful. And so, mm. you know, you have, you have to consider that, and, and you can frame this any way you want, but, you know, space is a global community. And so, you know, we all have to figure out how to collaborate. But even if you look at it from a narrower perspective of the United States government, it's certainly a national security type of issue. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get into things like, well, okay, the Department of Defense obviously has its own mission in the interest of national security. But if you don't know what the background is that's going on, you know, all this commercial activity today, it's kind of hard to, to you know, focus your attention on where you think there might be national security threats. And so we, you know, they need to update this if for no other reason than the national security stuff. I think we as a larger community are starting to realize that we really shouldn't depend on, um, and I'll just say national security interests to get the data we need to do science and, you know, commercial activities because there, there's a conflict of interest there, right? So, I mean, one, we know as we just discussed, there's limitations, you know, with some of the legacy systems, but probably more importantly, and we all we all know this is true. I mean, we're not revealing anything secret. The the fact is, when you get to national security issues, uh, the people that are dealing with those tend to be less than transparent, and that is really not in our best interest. And we're trying to do things like avoid collisions in orbit. Mm -hmm. So you really need to know. Not, not so much what something is doing, but where it is. You need to know what the confidence in that solution is. You need to be able to share it using, you know, standard interchange formats, you know, those kinds of things. And, and the more we make it proprietary or, you know, there's uh, issues like national security issues that say, well, I really can't tell you where this object's going to be as if, nobody else could figure out Look where it see. is and <laughs> yeah. right yeah and so so there's a lot of that 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 we have to break through and and so uh, you know on Celestrack, we're trying to enable people to go out and do that I, you know i don't to i mean i don't want to enable people to do bad things with it mm -hmm. but we know any technology can be misused no matter what you do mm -hmm. but the the objective is to share the information to be as transparent as possible to you know, try to provide the foundation, if you will, where we're, we're doing all the checks, we're trying to make sure that the data is reliable, that it's easy to find, and you know, we're dealing with a lot of data now, 
uh, it's easy to find when things go bump in the night. And then, then to make sure that whoever is generating, say, the primary source of the data, whether it's 18th or it's coming through space track or it's you know some other organization that we get data from that that we immediately advise them of the problem so that when we can help them get it worked out you know show them what we're seeing and then we fix the problem once and then all the literally millions of people that use Celestrack aren't faced with the challenge of oh my god now this isn't working and they've got to all go off and try to debug everything right that would be a tremendous waste of resources when they're really trying to do something else other than be a software engineer right right yeah and i've talked about this issue with uh with dins with ralph dinsley of norse uh who had ran filingdales uh folks remember mm -hmm. that the um the britain missile defense system is actually run or the the data comes from the united states installations and then uh filingdales is the operations center for that in england uh, but he, he was very adamant <laughs> coming from that national security armed forces background that this this stuff needs to be moved out from behind the national security firewall and that collaboration is going to help everyone. Um, so we've got we've got a standards issue. Uh, we've got I, I have heard that um, TLEs truncate data that there actually is more data transmitted in in uh, many cases. Is this true uh, that the data is cut off? Well, there, there's limitations. And, and so, you know, you'd asked the question about standards before, you know, what, what should come first? I didn't really answer that question, but if, if you read between the lines, you realize like, oh, the technology usually comes first and then we're scrambling to try to put standards in place to deal with it. And so we have a lot of people innovating. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they decide I'm just going to go off and do this and then everybody will catch up and usually mm -hmm. once you get behind it's that's a hard thing to do but on so the tle data is and i briefly mentioned it's really what we call gp data so there's there's different models okay. for propagating orbits and you know any model has simplifications and so there's an issue of fidelity and the kinds of uh, performance you're trying to get but because of the lack of you know, bandwidth and then uh, compute power, uh, the US government came up with SGP4, Simplified General Perturbations version four, that is focused on being able to be as computationally efficient to meet their requirements as possible. So we, so we use that, we have a format, but because they were trying to put the data into the format, so we, we talk about TLE data, it's really GP data in a TLE format. Uh, but when they put it in the TLE format, they did things like, oh, we're going to use a two-digit year because certainly in another 20, 30 years from now, <laughs> we'll have figured out how to change the format and won't have to limit ourselves to that. And they um, so use two-digit year, day of the year. Uh, they assume that we would never need more than 100,000 objects because it's a fixed field format and they use five digits for the catalog number. And of course, you know, we're, we're 21 years now into the 20th, 21st century, and we're still using two years. Right. So yeah, 1951 or whatever is coming up close. <laughs> right. Uh, so we, you know, we just assumed, and we went through this, you know, back in yeah, 2000, 2000, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, it's, you know, it'll magic, the computers will magically know that when you get to zero, that it doesn't mean 1900, it means 2000. Like, no, right. that's, 
not how computers actually work. With and the so, numbering problem, is it possible to put a letter in there and start getting far more that, you know, well, that's, combinations and so this, mutations? That's what yeah. you get into here, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, some parts of the DOD have proposed doing that and they're actually doing that. But when you think about it, it's just like the Y2K problem. Mm -hmm. you know, assuming that when it gets to zero, it's automatically going to assume 2000. It's like, no, that, that doesn't work. You have to update the software. Right. And, and so the same thing happens here. People say, oh, well, it's just a label. And it's like, no, I'm pretty sure if you actually went into the code mm -hmm. that's using it, most of them are assuming it's an integer. So when you do something okay. like you try to convert the integer or add or subtract, whatever, whatever you don't know what they're doing with that mm -hmm. data. Right. And so any software that assumed it was an integer, as soon yeah. as you say, oh, I'm going to use a letter for the first character yeah. too. It's A2, two. <laughs> fail. Right. <laughs> right. Yep, exactly. Okay. Hmm. All right. So, so there, it would work for so the satellite numbering, but it wouldn't work for the dates. Yeah. Huh. Well, it wouldn't work, wouldn't work for the dates. Uh, mm -hmm. And we... You know, you sit there and think, wow, you know, we're almost there. And and even the numbering, mm -hmm. I don't what do you do think with people really appreciate. Well, they, yeah. I don't think they really appreciate the limitation because you say, oh, well, it's five digits, 100,000. Current catalog is just under 48,000. It's taken us 60 years to get there. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the real, the real limitation is 70,000 yeah. mm. because there's a block from 70 to 100,000 that, uh, the 18th Space Control Squadron uses for, hmm. let's say, working space. They're doing mm -hmm. analysis to try to figure out new orbits, or they're tracking things that they don't know what they are. So hmm. we're getting perilously close to that edge, hmm. and then things are going to break. And we're trying to avoid huh. breaking it. I think you have, uh, so I'll wait for your questions. I think you yeah. have some questions well, I said uh-oh earlier when you said that there have been multiple attempts to do something about this, and they've all failed. Because if you don't understand why they failed, what chance do the rest of us have in, uh, in really understanding? What's going, I mean, is it just going to have to completely fail? And then finally, people are going to say, all right, we've, we're, we, we must commit to uh, evolving. And, and solving this problem. Yeah, I mean, people tend to be really creative at finding workarounds, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that just provides an opportunity at, at some totally unanticipated moment that just happens to be a critical moment mm -hmm. and you know, what we might call a perfect storm where that fails and it's going to bite you. And so, you know, we're trying to avoid doing that. And it, it tends to be pretty difficult to get people to understand that it's easier to do something about it now than it would be later. And, it, and actually, the Y2K issue comes to mind because I remember in the late 90s proposing that we update the TLE format. And the notion was, you know, I don't understand or you don't understand it, it's far more complicated then you're suggesting, and it's like, no, you don't understand because it's going to be easier to do that with, I mean, at the time we had, you know, probably fewer than 10,000 objects in orbit, and now mm -hmm. we got double that. Mm -hmm. And we have literally probably millions more people using that data than we did if they had fixed it then. And so now we're in a situation where it's like, well, okay, we're gonna hobble along. You'd think, 
hey, we got 30 more years before we get to 2050. Certainly it'll be fixed by then. But do you think the guys that came up with the two digit stuff back in the 70s thought it would be 50 years and we'd still be <laughs> using it? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, going back to the old computers again, uh, I know memory was in short supply RAM at that time, and they had to come up with very right. clever ways to get programs to operate, operate, shuffle things, use it like virtual memory. Uh, and But it eventually came to a point where the programs got so big that they just couldn't fit in that format anymore, and they had to upgrade to something else, plus there were commercial right. things going on. But um, <laughs> then that wasn't a, a national security problem, but it did evolve. So, well, let's let's talk a little bit about standards, um, and then I want to cover Celestrack. Uh, Celestrack's pretty darn exciting. So let's talk about the problem of overcoming uh, like user adoption in standards. So, like, say you've got the the Russians running their own um, tracking. What happens when their prediction does not? Uh, when they say this is going to be at this spot at this time, and that doesn't agree with, say, what the French or the, the Americans have come up with, how often does that happen? And then what happens? Well, there, so there's a couple of interesting questions yeah. wrapped into that. I'll see what, how right. I can uh, best answer it. So, we, right. so one of the other things that I do uh, as part of my work is I run something called the Space Data Center. Mm -hmm. And we're screen, we're supporting 30 plus operators in the space data so in the space data association to screen something like 800 satellites every day, and so you know and and we can only use data that's available, mm -hmm. and so for the most part, you know we've broken through the barrier that I face. So so this kind of started out as Socrates, which is still a, a program running on Celestrack, you know where we daily with the just with the TLE data, predict, you know, where things are going to get close, you know, that kind of stuff, just, just to give people a sense for the magnitude of the problem. And then, you know, it's been used in some interesting cases that, uh, you know, to kind of confirm something that happened, you know, after the fact, but, you know, we, so we're in a situation where it's like, well, we had TLE data. And then the next thought was, well, you know, satellites that maneuver all the time, are actually the hardest to, to track, you know, from a passive perspective, like the space surveillance network does, because you don't know when they're going to maneuver. And the concept, you know, when I set up Socrates was, if I can just get the operators to tell me, because they know when it's going to maneuver, and they know how much it's going to maneuver. And then we will, we will use that data to try to, to predict things. And, and what we find, so you're, you're worried about French data and Russian data and all that. Even when we use, and so now we get the GP data, the TLEs, we get the SP data, the special perturbations, which is a different you know, propagator, uh, can be more accurate because it incorporates more forces. We get that data now from um, 18 Space Control Squadron, and we have the operator's data. And when you put those in, oftentimes they don't agree. So it's not even a question of, what what would happen if we had French data or what would happen if we got data from Leo Labs, for example, mm -hmm. one of the commercial yeah. operators. But you know, we find that that all of these solutions have differences. And sometimes, you know, the differences might be pretty small. And other times you're sitting there going, wait, we're all using the same data. Why are we coming up with a different uh, answer? And sometimes it's because, oh well, we're using the latest data and they're using 
the previous data. And so the, the question becomes exceedingly complex. And then, then the layer that you're talking about with French data and Russian data is uh, it's not available. We may have limitations <laughs> on the US data, but to their credit, they have stepped out way farther than anybody else has. And so, you know, it's really kind of hard to say, well, it doesn't stop people from saying it. It's really hard to credibly say that data is better than your data when you won't share it and you won't allow people to do analysis and everything. And that's where the transparency comes into. And I don't, I don't, what we see is that if we don't compare the different types of data and do analysis on a, on a regular basis, like a daily basis at least, and find where things don't line up and, and pull the thread to ask why, you, there's a whole host of things that can go wrong. It, it's a system designed by human beings, they all fail. And so there's a whole host of things that can happen. And the more you're doing, the easier it is for it to get lost in the noise, right? And so there may be something that's going on with 100 satellites out of 20,000 and you don't see it because of that, you know, overall level of activity. And so you have to do this constant, you know, comparisons and then work with, you know, people have to be willing to collaborate and share and be open to exchanging that information. And, and we have a great relationship with Space Track, with 18, and when we find a problem, it's like, hey, you know, we're seeing this. Uh, maybe you miss. It looks like you missed a maneuver here, or you know, we have some other kind of issue. And we do the same thing with the operator. If we think that their data is showing a bias because of something that they're doing in their orbit, we'll make sure that we provide them all of the analysis that we have, with the hope that they'll fix it. Because ultimately, that you know improves the situational awareness for everybody. So that that's a challenge and it and I certainly encourage you know these other activities uh, Europeans or the French the Germans individually Russia China anybody that wants to participate we need to to find a way to participate now to address the issue of standards one of the things that that we've done quite extensively I guess on Celestrac is we realize that it can be difficult to exchange data when everybody's using their own format. Mm -hmm. So they they use different, you know, just formats, like how do I get the stuff into the computer? And they use different units and they use different propagators. And, and so when you get to that level of complexity, it's like, wow, this is, I have your data, but I'm not really sure I understand how to interpret and predict with your data that that's a challenge and we do that in the space data i said there were like 30 operators in the that we support in the space data center. there's probably at least 30 different formats because some of them have more than one. okay so so we get into the mode of well, we know how to interpret it and we're going to do that comparative analysis to make sure that our interpretation of the data matches what the operator thinks it should be and then we're going to translate it into standard products. So we use a you know common coordinate frame. We use common formats. We can we do for you know a lot of those operators. We send their data to 18th for 18th to do screening. Hmm. 
And, but we do that by taking the format that the operator uploaded, doing our magic on it, and then converting it to the format that 18th expects so that they can do their magic on it. And it, so those, those standards, having, knowing how to get in and out of them is important. And often it's hard for individual operators to do that. I mean, we have lots of experience with doing it. So we're very confident that we're doing it correctly, but it's easy to misinterpret, you know, something simple. And we found cases where we get the data and then the operator starts asking questions like, well, we thought it was supposed to be this. And it's like, no, it has to be a specific reference frame. And, and we help them get it corrected and we move on. But so standards are important, but I really can't emphasize enough the need to be transparent and sharing. And because if you're not sharing and you're not comparing to these other systems, one, like if you want to look at it from a commercial perspective and a marketing perspective, you can't really honestly say, oh, my data is better than yours, unless you can actually do a comparative analysis. And, and that potentially is one of the issues that people are sensitive to, right? They don't want to have their stuff look bad, but you can't find when you have problems either. And, and really what we would like to focus the community on is let's all work together, find the problems and help everybody get rid of them. And then you can compete on what you really think your advantage is. I have a better sensor and I can track more accurately and I can do whatever instead of, well, I'm not going to tell you what's going on. And you're going to believe, I'm going to help hope that you believe my data is better and pay me for it or whatever it happens to be. Because that's not really the way we're going to work together to protect the space environment. Right. Well, uh, some great takeaways from that. Uh, the usual of uh, things on the ground are rarely the way that they look up in the air. Uh, when you're actually doing the project, you stumble into these issues, right, of, uh, of formatting problems and that and units being different that you might not even consider way up on the strategic level of uh, how are we actually going to implement this. Uh, the statistician in me is wondering, um, maybe if these all these organizations didn't want to share all their data, maybe uh, sampling. Uh, pulling pulling the same satellites that I don't know what would be statistically relevant, maybe a hundred a day or something like that of this particular batch. Uh, and we, we check the same satellites, right? And uh, compare that data. And then you're not having to reveal everything. Um, I know from the data science side of our business, getting a client to fork over <laughs> All their data, that trust factor is a pretty difficult thing, uh, like especially in the healthcare field where you've got HIPAA and these requirements and that, um, which right. is not quite national defense, but it's a, it's a similar kind of situation where you're like, oh, I don't want this data roaming freely uh, through the countryside. There is a difference in that you can just stick a telescope up and see something, uh, whereas right. with healthcare, you can't quite do that. But I do want to echo that um, I've seen this this sort of, no, we don't really want to do that. We'd love to work with you, but sort of situation. Uh, well, that's cool. Well, let's, let's talk about Celestrack then and finish up with that. Uh, I love the application. I remember the first time I, 
<laughs> I found it. I was Googling around. Um, I, I was doing research on TLEs, what they were. I think I'd like just been told about them, right? So I do the usual thing, right? Go and look for five different sources that, that look trustworthy and compare them and learn, right? And so there's a bunch of definitions, kind of a glossary and that sort of thing. And then from there, I'm like, hmm, launch orbital visualization. What does this do? Right? And you see, everything going around. And, uh, and uh, that was my description, folks who were listening and can't see us. <laughs> All the uh, orbital circulations, right? Oh, that Celestrac shows you. I, I, I'll link to it in the description. I highly recommend you go look at this. Um, it's astounding. And then I moved my mouse wheel and panned out to Geo and saw that there were, in fact, more. <laughs> And uh, right. there is a lot going on. It's uh, anytime, uh, you know, I want to impress somebody uh, with, with uh, anything in space, really, any concept, I show them Celeste Track. It, uh, it, it has the desired effect. <laughs> that. so, at what point, let's start with this. Um, did you realize it was possible to build Celeste Track? Uh, obviously, you mentioned um, Socrates as a starting point. So you kind of had the math going. Um, but then to get to this stage of visualization where now, um, even six months ago, I don't remember being able to see this, but the, the string of, um, of, of Starlink satellites going by or something like that, right? It looks different now even than it did. Uh, oh yeah. So how did, it, how did it start out? Well, you know, so we, we talked about the early stages of Celestrac and, and for many, many years it was, well, we're gonna give you the data and we're gonna make sure that we quality check it and you know where to get it and we're going to put it you know initially we didn't have the web but in 1998 or actually 1994 i guess we started doing stuff on the web you know right after the web uh, came out yeah. and the idea was well, we're going to put it in a place where it's really easy to get so as a text file you can always go to the same text file and you know you're going to get the latest data really simple simple stuff but it was you know as we went through the years it became progressively more clear that as more people came into it, they were going to do the same thing you just described. It's like, uh, I want to figure out where my satellite is or some satellite, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, how do I do that? And then you find out, it's like, oh, I have to get a TLE. And it's like, what's that? And you look at the data and like, what the heck? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so it's like, and so I, you know, kept thinking about it. It's like, well, you, you've got people that, so it was kind of a, like an assembly process, you know, like an Ikea thing. It's like, well, here's, here's all the pieces and here's the instructions, you know, figure out how to put it together and do what you want to do. And over the years, as I've worked with not only people doing satellite tracking, you know, whether it's amateurs just wanting to go out and see something, or, I mean, we support a lot of satellite operations centers around the world too. So you, you got this whole range, but you realize it's like, they did, usually they just want to answer a question. Hmm. And so they don't, the question shouldn't be what the heck is a TLE and what do I propagate it with and which software has that? And then how do I learn to install and operate that software and everything? It's like, yeah, this is way too complicated. So, you know, was looking for a solution. And of course, you know, the company I used to work for, Analytical Graphics, AGI, had developed a technology called Cesium. Now Cesium is, you know, a separate uh, company and they, but they provide their framework to the community as an open source package. 
And so the concept was, you know, I, I really need to find a way to take all that. We have the data. Now, how do we put it in to a, uh, into cesium so that we can visualize it? And you might think, what, you know, how hard can that be? We do that with all sorts of, you know, models. And it turns out cesium is an exceedingly powerful program, but it's not really focused on the space stuff. And there aren't the, let's say, the, the links into it to be able to do this. And so one of the guys that uh, I met, we're both Air Force Academy graduates, and I met him when we were dealing with the Iridium Cosmos collision in the aftermath of that. Uh, he ended up uh, going off on his own and developing, this is TJ Corey, went off and developed uh, a technology that takes all of the stuff we're doing with SGP4, you know, so that propagator and making sure we had the right version of it and that it, you know, matches what we see used, uh, say like an 18th space control squadron and then coded that all up in JavaScript and in a way and made improvements to cesium so that it ran much, much faster for what we need to do in the orbital environment to the point where, you know, if you go to the Celestrac homepage and you click on the orbit visualization in, in a matter of seconds, it's gonna load, you know, a, an enhanced version of cesium and then all 21,000 objects that are currently in the public catalog. I mean, in, in seconds. And so the, the objective was to go from, oh, uh, there's this really cool software package and it runs on Windows. It's like, oh, dang, I'm on a Mac. And it's like, no, we don't care. It's like, it runs in the browser. And so it doesn't make any difference what operating system you're in. If you're using a modern browser, it supports Cesium. And, and so all of the calculations, because if you, know, if you think about it, so we get roughly 400,000 unique users on Celestrack a day. And, so you could take it from the perspective of, well, you know, maybe we would just run this on Celestrack. And it's like, wow, that would take like a huge server if you had even thousands of people come in and do that. And so with JavaScript, the beauty is you download that and you run it in your own browser. So it's a distributed computing, if you will. So he, he designed this uh, tool so that the cesium and and the special stuff that he does, you know, I'll say magic because it really it still looks like magic to me. That he's able to do things like propagate twenty thousand objects at thirty frames a second. So, yeah. do the math on that. That's a lot of calculations every second to update that, and then and then that takes it away from. Well, I have to know what the data is, and I have to know what the standard format is. I need to know how to interpret it. I need to know what. Um, orbit model to propagate it with, what software is it on my operating system? It'll run in your browser on Windows or Mac OS or Linux. It'll run on Android, iOS. It doesn't require installation. It just works. And so that that's really the beauty of it. And then it allows you to do things to get the people that really need to understand it. So we're talking about standards and technology and the other aspect we get into when we talk about those is you know the legal and policy side of things right and they're not they're not scientists and they're not computer engineers so they're not going to go off and probably try to figure out what a tle is and and do that whole journey and so it's like so we so i'll uh 
I'll give your listeners an opportunity to go out and see how easy this is. You know, click on the orbit visualization, give it a couple seconds to load. And then at the bottom left, there's a little satellite icon and it'll open a table. And that's a table that shows all the objects, you know, it has metadata about each object. And so you can click any of those. So you click on the catalog number, I think we call it the ID or something like that. But if you click on that, it'll select it and show you where it is on the globe. But you can do things like in the little search box, you can say, well, how many active satellites are there? And just type active into the box and you'll see, wow, there's over 4,000 active satellites. Now, just a few years ago, that was like a quarter of that. And a large part of that is because of Starlink. And you could do something like, well, just show me where all the Starlink satellites are and type Starlink. And then boom, in, in a second or so, you're going to see all just that displayed on the screen. And so you can say, wow, you know, 4,000, that's a lot of satellites. But what, so those are all green, the active ones mm -hmm. in the display. And it's like, well, what are these orange and red ones? And it's like, well, orange are dead satellites. And you might think, well, looks like there's a lot of those, but is it really a lot? And they type dead in that box and you find out, oh yeah, there's like 2,800 dead satellites still floating around in all orbital regimes, right? Is that a problem? And, and so if you're trying to get a, a policy person or you know a legislative person to understand the magnitude in, in a matter of a minute, like if I were to show you and we would have too much screen lag with yep. doing it over Zoom, yep. but if you go in and play with it, you can see that in a minute you could run through and say, well, let me type active, let me type dead, let me type rocket body. See, there's like 2000 rocket bodies that are still up in Earth orbit and, and help somebody very quickly understand the magnitude of the problem, where these things are, uh, and, and then hopefully spark their curiosity to want to go out and learn more about not so much how do I do all that calculation, but how do I go off and now address the problem? How do I convince other people that this is a problem and do it in a way that, you know, people that aren't scientists or engineers can readily understand? So that, that's been the focus has been how do I take Celestrac from being a kind of a data repository to take it to being a, a tool that can easily help people answer questions that they might have today about what's going on in Earth orbit. And you can you can easily, as you mentioned, see all these like trains of satellites, uh, the green satellites, and those are you know many of the recent Starlink launches. They're they're absolutely easy to pick out mm -hmm. just just on initial inspection. And you move the globe around and think, wow, they're everywhere. And they're mm -hmm. and SpaceX is just getting started. Right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to use. Data visualization is so important. Uh, we have a, a data science department here. Our um, chief data scientist, his day job is at a major pro, uh, fraud identification business. Um, that's where I started learning about fraud uh, prevention and data visualization. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. You, you start recognizing right. the pattern. And uh, so I can I, I know how valuable this is, as you say, to just show somebody uh, not in the form of a table or numbers, but here's a picture and it's in motion and uh, it's undeniable. Once you see it, 
again, you can't unsee it. It's very impressive. What, uh, let's finish up with this then, Dr. Kelso. What capabilities do you envision Celestrack having eventually in five years or 10 years? Well, we're, we're trying to, I guess, push that, that limit of what we've already done. So the, the version of orbit visualization that we have on Celestrack is, I guess it's version one, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so TJ and I have been working on uh, version two and it has some really nice enhanced capabilities. And the idea is to be able to take it a little bit beyond that to the point where, well, you can do this kind of like somebody gave me a view and I'm just gonna accept what that view is to being something that you know you can customize you know with like very little uh, javascript right so you'd write javascript on top of it to do you know kind of high level operations to show you know how your satellites interconnect or where they can what things they can see on the ground or you know a whole variety of things and and particularly to help with things like conjunctions you know when we have close approaches of satellites to be able to show uh, you know, a lot of people think of a conjunction as being kind of a one-off, you know, something goes whizzing by something else, but we see what we call conjunction storms hmm. where we have, you know, so the two orbits, like if you think of two circular orbits that are intersecting, they intersect on opposite sides of the orbit. And normally you might only see it happen where they are in phase on one of those two intersections. But it turns out that some orbits, and we see this quite frequently, they're intersecting not only every time they go past that intersection, but the one on the other side too. And so you see like for low earth orbit, you might see close approaches uh, every 40, you know, 45, 50 minutes or so. And you realize like, oh, well, it's just like, it's like playing the lottery. The more times you play it, the more opportunity you have to win, or in this case to lose. And, and so we're trying to, to take that concept and, and again, enable innovation. You know, we've, we've built the framework to allow people to go off and innovate and help educate the community. But that, that's really Celestrac's mission has been to you know, facilitate collaboration. So we did that all the way back from electronic bulletin boards to today and to facilitate you know, easy, sharing of the data through standardization and to promote you know the use of new standards and now to to make it so that you can innovate on top of that in a much easier way so that because the, there's no way if i live to be a million that i could do all the things that many of your listeners are thinking about wanting to do right now and and the best way i can help them is to make sure that they have that foundation so one of the things we're looking at is to take things like right now, we just show you where the latest data shows a satellite is. And there's a little timeline, you know, a little scrubber that you can pull back and forth and go through. And what we wanna do is switch, and we're working on doing that in version two, is to be able to have it switch every time the data switches. So if you're watching, you know, something going on where a satellite is maneuvering, say to another orbit, instead of seeing the view at where it is now, you can go back and see, how the orbit changed over time or see you know when somebody moves a satellite to say decommission it or you know when they're doing a, maybe a collision avoidance maneuver there's, there's all sorts of opportunities there and we're just trying to find ways to facilitate people 
learning and exploring and being able to innovate in this environment. Well, then uh, I'm extremely appreciative, T.S., for us starting out where we did, right, with the, with the 70s and the 80s and all those problems of uh, standards and sharing information and collaborating and whatnot. And we're, we're I, I'm not going to say it's super similar, but we're in a slightly similar situation today, but just with a way better starting point, it sounds like, where uh, there are some standards, we can share this information, but then now it's up to you, listeners and viewers, to come up with, all right, what do we do with this? What's the next step? Um, how, how can they collaborate with you and how can they get involved and, and kind of stick up their hand and say, hey, I have an idea? Uh, the easiest way to do it is go to Celestrack and every single web page has my email address. You click on <laughs> okay. it, it should Animal. launch your, your mail, mail uh, client, and then you can just send me your message. And, and honestly, I mean, I, obviously I have a lot of stuff going on, mm -hmm. but I try to take, you know, about an hour a day at least mm -hmm. just to answer people's questions. And, and you would be surprised where that comes from. I mean, sometimes it's, from professionals, you know, trying to work a particular problem. And, and in many cases, kind of helping me push what we should be doing on Celestrax. Like, yeah, we don't do that yet. Let me see if I can figure out how we can to, to literally answering questions for high school kids in India. Hmm. I mean, or anywhere else on, on the planet. I uh, usually try not to do that within about a week or so. So I'm not doing their homework. For them. <laughs> but, but, you know, you never know whose spark you're going to help light that's going to go off and change the world. And so we, you know, we want to do that. And I encourage any of your listeners that if they have questions and they, you know, they can't find it already on Celestrack. Uh, one, I want to know that because if, if I get a lot of mm -hmm. questions like that, I'm looking for ways to make that easier. But, you know, if you're doing something and you just can't figure it out, just, uh, you know, shoot me an email and I'll be happy to get back to you. The other, the other thing I would encourage is that, you know, if you're trying to stay up on current events and, you know, some of the highlights, like this morning, we finally got pieces, we got uh, 20, 22 of what looks like to be 25 pieces of debris for a NOAA 17 breakup event that occurred on March 10th. Uh, so, you know, that went on a track and I immediately put something out on Twitter, you know, showing the orbits with the orbit visualization and making sure that they're aware of that if they happen to be interested. So you can kind of stay up on new launches and other things that might be of interest if you're you know, wanting to learn more about the community. Fantastic. All right. And folks, be persistent. I know uh, I... We were laughing because it took us, and I really appreciate you coming back and, and booking this time. It took us months to, to arrange this. So very different time zones. Uh, Dr. Kelso's got work to do. <laughs> so, Imagine know, that. But, but he, you know, to his credit, it, we, we, we got this, and uh, it's been a very good process uh, to set this up. But um, if I had just given up after one attempt, we probably wouldn't be talking. Um, because right. other people, the squeaky wheel kind of gets the well, <laughs> would have been, uh, you know, higher up on the food chain. So, well, thank you very much for doing this again. It's been uh, extremely informative. I've enjoyed it a lot and uh, getting to know you as a human being as well. Okay. Thanks. Really appreciate the time and hope all your listeners enjoy it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for tuning in. 
you're interested in working with us at Cold Star Tech, here are some of the things that we can help with. There's a lot of people who talk about process, documentation control, attention to detail, all this stuff. We help organizations become true learning organizations. Remember, if something isn't written down or recorded in some way that's accessible, searchable, findable, it didn't happen. It might as well not have happened. So if you have two people who solve a problem, a serious problem in your organization, but they do so in isolation and nobody finds out about it, which happens all the time, then it didn't really happen and nobody else can access that wisdom. So we unlock wisdom for your organization. We do a lot of things in the space industry. We have access to regulatory and legal officials who can help you if you're a space industry founder find out what areas of regulation and compliance uh, do you need to be you know, working with, compliant with. And we find a lot of folks don't even know about some of these areas. They don't even know that they exist. Can you imagine how you're gonna stumble and stub your toe and really screw up your organization's timetable if you don't know about these things? So come and talk to us. We've got great relationships with the right people, especially in the United States and in England. And uh, we'll be able to help you with that. And so when it comes to process improvement, whether that's some sort of business documentation, business development roles, wow, have I seen some things in business development. You got founders out there who all they're doing is quoting on projects. This is a mistake. You're wasting your energy bidding on things that most of which you never even had a chance of winning in the first place. Uh, I've seen people bankrupt themselves bidding on everything or bidding on only these uh, high-end things and not realizing that you need to have a strategy so that this bidding process pays for itself. I mean, you got to learn how to screen here. And this is not something that they teach you in school. I, I had to learn it myself, so don't feel bad about it, but come talk to us about it, okay? Uh, so either it's on the business process side or the actual manufacturing of physical goods that kind of process improvement. You can come talk to us. Can this be done faster, cheaper, better? And yes, most of the time it sure can um, because people just do stuff. And the first person to invent the way of doing things uh, is the person who gets to choose most of the time how things are done. This happens all over the place. I like to point out our um, traffic signals for, for automobiles are based on the way that they ran railway traffic 100 years before that, okay? So, and this is key in the space industry right now, which is new, right? This is an area that I personally am interested in. How we figure out how to do stuff today is going to impact generations because people are so easily locked into, this is how we've always done it. And if you hear that at your organization, there's a warning bell. This is how we've always done it. You need to come talk to us at that point, okay? So reach out to us. It's easy to do. Just message me on LinkedIn or email me at jason at coldstartech.com. I want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.